The Salem Witch Trials. Want to know what's disturbing about the Salem Witch Trials? Just about everything. Started in the spring of 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts, after two girls accused some women of being witches. Fear, paranoia, hysteria snowballed in what would become what we might call a circus of carnage. Many were brought before judges and sentenced to death with little or no real evidence whatsoever against them except for what was fabricated and baseless testimonies of others. Needless to say, things got out of hand rather quickly, and it would go down in history as one of the most horrific events in early Americana. Join us tonight as we dive deeper into the Salem Witch Trials. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Well, before we jump into this episode, Eric, I, I, I've talked have a to little us celebration. A little bit. This will be our 50th episode. 50th! Which, um, if my math is correct, we should have done about a year ago if we were doing <laughs> one every week. <laughs> shame um, on us, shame on us. Yeah, COVID and job life. responsibilities and all kinds of Pesky stuff have gotten in the stuff. way. But yeah, this is this is episode number 50. So, Eric, we've we've made it this far. It's it's not a bad start. I've I've always heard that if you can get to the first one hundred on a podcast, you're doing pretty good. We're so halfway there. We're halfway there. <laughs> well, we thought we would try something a little maybe quirky and unusual for our fiftieth, because that's just kind of how we roll. So, um, throughout tonight's podcast on the Salem Witch Trials, we've installed a special bell. Randomly, Bill or I can just reach over there at a whim and ring that bell and i have a list of strange and weird facts that i'll just kind of interject in the middle of the podcast all relating around salem witch trial and that certainly is not going to seem out of uh sorts with such a serious topic at absolutely all. <laughs> we're going to try to liven it up a little bit keep a lighter light on it so the salem witch trials kind of a a dark moment in the history of America. I think almost everyone surely has heard of heard of this, yeah. even touched upon in school history. Colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693, more than 200 people were accused of the practice of witchcraft. 20 were executed. And, uh, you know, eventually the colony would admit that these trials were a mistake uh, and, and, and tried to compensate the families of the convicted. And you might also say it may have been one of the earliest government cover-ups because of the embarrassment of everything that occurred, and there were definitely steps put in to erase the history. So, historically speaking, many practicing Christians and and those of other religions, uh, they had this strong belief that the devil could give people powers uh, and that these people were known as witches. They had the ability to harm others. And the devil would give them these gifts in return for their loyalty and their, their very soul. Now, a witchcraft craze tore through Europe from the 1300s to the end of the 1600s. Tens of thousands of accused witches during this time, mostly women, were executed. And as it was kind of fading out in Europe, it sort of bled over into uh, to America. Here's our first topic All we're, right. we're going to insert. Um, confession. 
Under English law, court was not what we might have considered it being today. No lawyers or real evidence even had to be there. (laughs) Often just the accused would see the writing on the wall and they would confess because to confess, there was a good chance you would be left alive and released. Now, often associated with that, if I confessed, I would have to point a finger at my neighbor or someone else to get me off the hook. (laughs) We'll just roll with the story after that. 1689, English rulers William and Mary started a war with France. Uh, in the in, This was in the American colonies. And it ravaged regions of upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. Now, you may not understand how this gets to the story that we're going to, but but trust me, we need this little bit of background to kind of explain why why we get where we get to. Uh, the refugees from, from those regions fled to the county of Essex, and specifically to Salem Village. Uh, Salem Village is presently known as Danvers, Massachusetts. And what was colonial Salem town is now known as Salem. So these displaced peoples started to cause a strain on the resources of Salem. Uh, and that exi- aggravated the existing rivalries between families and, and the, the families that had ties to the wealth of the port of Salem and those who were depending on agriculture. These families saw you know, their supply lines being strained and, and, and there was, let's say, strife, anger you know, at, at these refugees for coming in and causing these problems. So uh, there was also some controversy over the Reverend Samuel Paris, who is, is very important in this. Uh, he became Salem Village's first ordained minister in 1689. He was disliked because of his rigid ways and his greedy nature, which I think we all agree greedy is not words you're looking for in your, your minister. You wouldn't think not. Uh, the Puritan villagers believed that all of this quarreling was the devil's work. So this kind of, uh, we kind of touch fire to the, this this bonfire, if you will. In January of 1692, when Reverend Paris's daughter Elizabeth, age nine, and his niece Abigail Williams, age 11, start to having what they call fits. Now, these fits involve screaming, throwing things, the utterances of peculiar sounds, contorting themselves, like, you know, into different shapes and, 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 and odd angles. I mean, the, the stereotypical things that you see in the exorcism yeah, movies. Possession, possession yeah, type stuff. Yeah, like the exorcist, you know. The, the local doctor was called in, and he, of course, being a learned man of science, blamed it on the supernatural. Absolutely. All right, it's time for another weird fact. Uh, witch cakes. Another test performed to help prove if you were uh, a witch is to create a rye flour cake with a batter mixture mixed with the accused witch's urine. Gross. Gross. It would then be offered to a dog to eat. And if the dog developed the same symptoms of the witchcraft and then would go over and possibly sniff that person, obviously the dog was identifying you as a witch. Uh, why a dog? Some might ask. Well, they were considered the hounds of hell, keep in mind. <laughs> and they were often considered to be in league with Lucifer himself. So not long after the Reverend Paris's family there began to have these witchy episodes, another local girl, Anne Putnam, aged 11, began to have similar episodes. On February 29th, under pressure from magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, uh, the girls were, were pressured to, to reveal what was going on, what was happening to them, if they knew who was to blame. The girls blamed three local women for afflicting them. A Tatuba, the Paris family's Caribbean slave, I thought that was Tichiba. Again, we're going to talk about butchering names. Ordering, okay, okay. I, I, I'm just saying it the way it's spelled. Okay. Uh, Sarah Good, a homeless baker, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly, impoverished woman. So these three women were brought before the local magistrates and interrogated for several days, starting on March 1st of 1692. 
Osborne and Good claimed innocence. They 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 didn't know what was Obviously. going on. They they were being blamed for no reason. Tituba confessed that the devil came in and bid me to serve him. And she described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, pink horseshoes, green clovers. That actually brings me to another weird fact we have long like to share here. Torture. Yep. You guessed it. Often torture tactics would be used to try to get a confession during the Salem witch trials. In one case where slave Tichaba was being severely beaten by Rod, she cried out, the devil came to me and bid me to serve him. She then went on to babble about black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and ending with an old white haired man that she said approached her and made her sign the devil's book. Yeah, she admitted that she had signed the book and said there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. What I have here. Uh, and eventually all three women were put in jail. Uh, a stream of accusations followed for the next few months. And, and you may help me flesh out some of this, Eric. Uh, charges were brought against Martha Corey, a local member of the church in Salem. This, this accusation greatly concerned the community, uh, basically because if she could be a witch, then anybody could. Well, and Martha Corey was a, a very big part of the story. I think she often gets overlooked. Not everybody bought into the validity of the trials. Martha often spoke up against the treatment and accusations of those that she saw in town. She encouraged others to speak up and stop the nonsense. Now you can imagine that didn't, that didn't go so well. Well, okay. Much of the same as the Elizabeth Bathory episode. You're talking about a time when, when women were not yeah. really supposed to be voicing in their opinions. Puritan church, a woman just stands up in church and starts saying, yeah, you're wrong guy. Yeah. You and know, no wonder she ended up on the, yeah. So obviously receiving it didn't go so well. So they're like, well, if you're arguing with us, you've got to be a witch too. So yeah, now it's turned and, and, uh, you know, now she's accused as a witch. Now this takes kind of a weird twist because, you know, here the woman is standing up in church. She's, she's saying, now people listen up. This, this is a bunch of hoopla. Her own husband then stands up and being the good husband says, I agree. She's a witch and testifies against his own wife as a witch. Now there's this little thing called karma. I don't know if people have heard of that or not, but, uh, it's, it's eventually going to catch up with you. Uh, Giles, Corey, Martha's husband, who went to trial against her and accused his own wife of being a witch was actually pressed to death himself later being accused <laughs> of being a witch. One of the first men, uh, actually, cause again, as Bill had said earlier, is mostly a woman, uh, female type deal that was witches, but he was pressed to death, not up on gallows Hill, but in the town where if you're not familiar with being pressed to death, that's where they would lay you on your back put like a wooden board across you as you're laying down and then weight it with stones, blocks, bricks until basically they just squished all the air out of your lungs. That sounds awful. Uh, that would be a horrible way to go. Um, from what I read, this went on for like a day and a half, two days. Ugh. And, uh, Mr. Giles, Corey, uh, very strong, hearty farmer type guy. I guess his last words was, uh, you know, more weight. I, I've always heard that, yeah. You know, so he was just... I can think of better last words. Yeah, you know. Something about what you can go and do to yourself. But, but, but you, you got to think, I mean, here this guy, maybe he's thinking, maybe my wife really wasn't that bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, magistrates um, brought in Sarah Good's daughter, Dorothy. Uh, her, she was four years old. They accused a four-year-old of witchcraft, Eric. Yeah, four-year-old. Definitely guilty. And when she couldn't answer the questions, you know, forthright and, and, and with conviction, 
Because, again, she's four years old. Four years old. My yeah. daughter's 13, and she doesn't answer questions with conviction most of the time. Especially yeah. when you're put on in front of people and, you know, demanding. Yeah, you're being accused yeah. of witchcraft. You're going to be nervous no matter what you're accusing her of witchcraft, something horrible. And she knows she, she's four, you know. She probably doesn't know what's going on at all. Up, yeah. up. Oh, oh, here's oh. another one. Lands and homes removed, um, kind of a political aspect here. When, when torture and execution, while they are very scary, another probably maybe equal scary uh, effect at that time was to have your land removed because if you were accused of being a witch during this time frame, your property was seized. Everything that you had worked for your entire life was taken away, and essentially that would leave you in poverty. So some of these accusations could have been motivated by something other than Witchcraft? Maybe a neighbor just wanting some extra property. Yeah. I want the Weir's property, so don't build there as a witch. <laughs> Ask his four-year-old daughter. <laughs> yeah. She'll tell you. So the questionings begin to get more serious in April when Deputy, Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and his assistants started to attend the hearings. Uh, dozens from Salem and other villages were brought in for questioning. On May 27, 1692, Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court of Oyer to hear and a terminer to decide for Suffolk, Exus, and Middlesex counties. Uh, the first case brought before this court was Bridget Bishop. Uh, she was an older woman known for her gossipy habits and promiscuity. A busybody. So, yeah, in more ways than one. <laughs> and, and again, these are habits that would probably be frowned upon. So when, when she was asked if she had committed witchcraft, her response was, in quote, I am as innocent as the child unborn. So, uh... Of course, she was found guilty. Of course. And on June 10th, she, She's became, a witch. she became the first person hanged on what would later be known as Gallows Hill. Uh, five days later, respected minister Cotton Mather wrote a letter imploring the court not to allow spectral evidence. This was actually one of the tidbits. Spectral evidence. Uh, George Jacobs, another piece of uh, evidence that was used in trials, was called spectral images. Now, just listen into this. This is how technical the courts were at the time. Some would come forward and declare they were visited by a ghost or spirit of the witch. Now, this might be because you were being accused as a witch right there in the courtroom. So you'd just stand up and you'd say, Bill, right there, he came to me as a ghost just right now. And he told me he's a witch and he's after me. He's trying to kill me. Look, Eric, I only did that once. <sighs> yeah, but it scared me to this day. <laughs> I mean, that is the type of spectral imaging. That is the type of courtroom evidence that was permitted and allowed uh obviously just saying that you saw a ghost form and someone was trying to kill them or lead them off of bluffs or to do harm despite no concrete evidence um george jacobs was found guilty and sentenced to death just because someone said his ghost approached them and tried to kill him yeah that's real hardcore scientific that's, evidence that's pretty technical stuff i i don't know why anybody would be afraid of, of being going to court in salem after Minister Mather wrote the letter to the court about disallowing spectral evidence, they went ahead and ignored that request because, you know, why would you in any way, shape, or form not listen to people talk about ghosts? <laughs> that is that is why we do this podcast. That is why we do it. That's the rock <laughs> evidence right there. So there were five more people sentenced and hanged in July, uh, five more in August, and eight in September. October 3rd, following in his son's footsteps, Increase Mather, which is an interesting name. Increase. Uh, who was then president of Harvard, uh, denounced the use of spectral evidence yet again. It is better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned, in his own words. Nobleman. So he seemed to be a good dude. 
Uh, Governor Phipps, in response to Mather's plea and his own wife being questioned at the time now, mm-hmm. uh, he further he prohibited further arrests. He he said, okay, we've, we've had enough of this. I thought this part, I'm, I'm going to interject here. This guy, he's just kind of kicked back watching everything unfold for like two yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. And now all of a sudden his wife gets accused of being a witch. He's like, uh, now hold on people. Uh, you know, maybe we're taking this a bit too far. This is nonsense, you know? So yes, literally the governor of Salem, uh, William Phipps, maybe obviously he could have stopped it much earlier, but two years goes by, his wife gets accused and he pivotally almost instantaneously yeah. stops the yeah. witch trials. Um, yeah, he prohibits further arrests. He releases many of the accused witches and then he dissolves the court of Oyer and Terminer on, uh, October 29th. Uh, replaces it with a superior court of judicature. Here's yet another. I'm glad you can define this one. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not going to actually touch on that one, but oh, okay. because we are removing ways to do witch trials with the whole spectral ghost images, uh, something new was created, and it was called uh, door-to-door witch hunting. Oh, awesome. I don't know. It's kind of like Avon's calling. Um, <laughs> hey, knock, 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 knock. Are you a witch? Uh, believe it or not, this was a practice encouraged by the local magistrate uh, to go door to door to get people to essentially rat out their neighbors and report any strange or unusual behavior that might seem witchy. That was the word <laughs> that was used. Obviously, this- I know a lot of people that are witchy. Yeah, I do. Uh, this obviously didn't help things and actually fueled the fire even more for putting neighbor against neighbor- uh, I mean, the people were afraid to go out in town. They were afraid to to commune, to speak, to gather, to do anything. Because uh, you might have that knocking on the door and be like, Bill, <laughs> has there been any witchy behavior going on around here? All right, so after replacing the court of Oyer and Terminer with the court of Judicature, which disallowed spectral evidence at the suggestion of uh, increased Mather and of Governor Phipps, uh, they only condemned three out of 56 defendants after that. Uh, Phipps eventually pardoned all who were in prison on witchcraft charges by May of 1693, but by this point in time, the damage had been done. Nineteen were hanged on Gallows Hill. A 71-year-old man was pressed to death with heavy stones. We talked about him. More weight. Nearly 200 people overall had been accused of practicing witchcraft. Another interesting fact. Burned at the stake. We all hear this and associate it with witches. Uh, while this was popular myth, um, might be told that this was the main form of the death sentence, but it's untrue. Uh, burning at the stake was actually a European form. Here in the United States, the common practice was actually hanging. Did a little bit more research on uh, the hanging, and it's not what you might also think of the, you know, kind of cowboy western town where a, a nice deck was built and, and the trap, trap doors and all that. no uh back then they would just find a big tree and they would throw up a wooden ladder it's uh, like the old school lynching type the, the hangman Ugh. would be like setting up there on the branch that the rope would tied to you'd be expected to climb the ladder obviously somebody kind of uh, pushing you up the ladder uh, a bag would be put uh, over your head and rather than being dropped to snap your neck the words roll them off. They would tilt the ladder and you just kind of spin off the ladder and twirl and, and strangle. Uh, this could go on for as much as eight to 10 minutes uh, as basically you're just being crushed and, and not allowed to breathe. Well, this, I'm sure that's not meant to sound good in any way. It just sounds off. Uh, that, uh, it was not a quick death. There was no snapping to the neck. You just suffocated. And uh, imagine you're the fourth person to be hanging. So you get to watch three people before you go through this. It would absolutely be terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. 
So following the trials and the executions, many involved, like Judge uh, Samuel Sewell, uh, publicly confessed to, to error and guilt. They, they, they realized that they had been caught up in this fervor of witch hunting and, and that they had made some mistakes along the way. And uh, let me say there, this kind of goes back to what they called the Witchcraft Act. Uh, the trials were mostly supported by the United Kingdom's Parliament Act of 1542. Uh, and then after that, hundreds of additional laws could be and were added to the advanced scope of witchcraft. And you've heard some of that, like spectral ghosts. Basically, you had this, this, this book of the law, and it was just kind of freely handed out. And it's like, hey, if you want to add anything, any good ways to try to track down a witch, just write it in here, and it's good to go. So uh, January 14, 1697, the general court ordered a day of fasting and soul searching in, in sort of retribution for what they had done. In 1702, the court declared that the trials had been unlawful. And Imagine so that. Un tried trying to undo what they had done. In 1711, the colony passed a, a bill restoring the rights and good names of those accused and granted 600 pounds restitution to the heirs. Too little, too late. Yeah. Uh, however, it was not until 1957 that the state of Massachusetts formally apologized for the events of the Salem Witch Trials. And I had down actually in 2016, not so many years ago, uh, the true site of Gallows Hill, the burial spot, the final resting place, if you would, for those souls was actually found. And they've put up like a monument since there. My wife, Sarah, and I were actually traveling just a few weeks ago. And we actually made a stop in Salem. Uh, ironically, it was the week of Halloween. And I, I will say I was quite surprised. Um, that is quite a celebration there during Halloween, as one <laughs> might imagine. But there were street festivals and, and uh, New England clam chowder and funnel cakes and stuff being sold. And it was very um, tourist-driven. Yeah. We want to go back to actually visit some more of the historical aspects of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I saw Freddy Krueger in the street, <laughs> Michael Myers. You know, there were several people kind of looking around. But, yeah, it was 2016 before they actually even found those sites and identified them because there was what some people would consider maybe one of the first government cover-ups uh, because of the embarrassment and how long this had, had toiled on without, I mean, let's face it, not a lot of real evidence here, and it could have been all politically driven. Uh, many of the books and, and uh, writings were ordered destroyed. In the fall of 1692, Bill was kind of touching on this, the governor of the colony, William Phipps, he bans any writing or publication about the witch hunt right after this happened. Basically, it's unlawful to even write about it. We don't want to see it in the newspapers. We don't want to see it anywhere. There were burnings of uh, manuscripts and books. Uh, there was one book, however, that, if you will, escaped the wrath of the Puritan local government. Uh, the book was published in London eight years after the Salem ordeal. Uh, the title was More Wonders of the Invisible World by Walter Koloff. Um, he felt a great injustice had been done. From what I understood, he was actually present during part of that there in Salem, sounding like barely escaping the whole witchcraft trials himself. So I'm imagining right there on the latter end, he would maybe have been released. Uh, he is the gentleman that describes some of the conditions of how the bodies were disposed of. He said he came across one victim that was literally half buried, uh, one foot totally sticking above ground, and the chin and partial forehead of the individual still exposed. Uh, so just kind of mass graves. 
So that book escaped, got printed many years later. Uh, kind of one of the fewest uh, known, true documented instances of some of the stuff that went on there. We'll throw in yet another interesting tidbit. Um, ergot poisoning. Uh, ergot yeah, we need to poisoning. talk about that. I think this could possibly explain a lot. I was not familiar with what ergot poisoning was, but it, one theory is well, the trials could have been fueled by ergot poisoning of the town. That is a fungus that affects and grows in rye grain in what was described as moist, warm conditions. Well, it, it can be found on, on like rye and wheat, any, any of the cereal grasses okay. that, that would have been used at the time. I, I would assume barley, possibly. Quite common, from what I understand, in the, uh, the climates of Salem. Uh, the poisoning could cause a lot of the same symptoms of witchcraft, including spasms, fits, convulsions, delusions, vomiting, and basically hallucinating. Yep. So that's exactly what some of the young girls and stuff were implying. Imagine all of, uh, all of, all of that, all those people, you know, 20 dead, you know, people jailed, 200 accusations, families ruined, reputations destroyed because, because a village ate bad bread. Bad bread. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, I've got uh, a few more tidbits I'll kind of run through here. Animals on trial. Uh, sadly, not only were humans caught up in the Salem witch trials, but also dogs in particular. And we touched upon this earlier. Dogs were considered at the time hounds of hell and in close relationship with the devil. The furry pets and guardians were often accused of bewitching someone. In one recorded incident, a girl claimed that the neighbor's dog bewitched her. The dog was shot and put to death immediately. Mr. Reverend Cotton Mathers steps forward, however, and he said, well, that dog couldn't have been the devil because if we would have shot the devil, it wouldn't have killed him. <laughs> so the dog was uh, released. Uh, unfortunately, again, too little too late. Another instance during the Salem Witch Trials was called the Touch Test. With this test, uh, while the afflicted was having a fit or convulsion, if a witch, accused witch, would touch them and those instances would stop, well, then that's proof that that was a witch. They could turn it on, turn it off. <laughs> uh, this often played out, and often the afflicted, indeed, would stop acting out if they were touched, and immediately they would point at the person and say, well, that's the witch. And that's kind of weird. There again, you were accused of being a witch and, and put to death. The swimming test. We've seen and heard of this. Okay. And, you know, and, I, and I was actually, I had thought to ask about that. I thought if you might know a little more, if that was actually used in these particular it, cases. It wasn't what's been portrayed. Imagine that in, in literature and stuff. But uh, there was a swimming test. And during the time frame, I, this, the law manuscript that I had, had spoken about, it was, it was defined. Uh, during witch hunting, they would have one finger tied to the opposite toe with a string. And then they were thrown into Creek Pond River. <laughs> if they floated, they were definitely a witch. Obviously, they'd be put to death. Now, the downside of this was if you waited too long and they didn't float, they could drown. But while they died, you were declared that you definitely weren't a witch. So I, you it, could it's just you know, straight back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail well, with that. Exactly. Exactly. It, crazy. Now, another thing you've got to consider during this time frame was smallpox. Uh, smallpox went along the same time frame as the Salem Witch Trials. There was actually a recorded smallpox outbreak in that exact region. 
Reverend Cotton Mathers, once again, he comes forward, and this is where he accused Martha Carey as being a witch of casting this hex upon the village, calling her a withered hag and the queen of hell herself. Uh, now, no evidence was ever proven to this, and instead she was just considered an independent thinker and, and unsubmissive. Uh, this goes on with the husband that went against her and was later pressed. But smallpox is where you break out with all the little small uh, red uh, afflictions on your skin. And obviously, in a time where medicine was new and, and you know not everybody could read and write, that, that could be very scary and would look like a possible hex or a spell had been cast. I think a lot of it just goes back to mass hysteria. You know, back then it's doubtful most villagers in Salem even understood, maybe didn't even comprehend what was happening. Uh, they were knocking on the doors, asking you to confess. Uh, they were intimidated. They were scared. This whole mass hysteria, the social psychology, uh, it's actually a psychological condition with stress, malnourished individuals. And sadly, the hysteria only snowballed. Uh, and rather than it fizzling out in a short period of time, as we talked about, this went on for like three years. Well, and again, we sort of touched on it with the these these uppity broads, right? I mean, having opinions and, and doing things on their own. How dare they? Uh, Independent the, free speakers. The, these girls even, I mean, the initial, I mean, they were just kind of acting up maybe, you know, they weren't, well, they weren't doing what they were told. The next thing you know, they're pointing fingers and accusing people of witchery and, you know, they, they were different times. They were different times. A lot of these stories, when you go back three or 400 years and, and the, what we consider, you know, societal norms now, you know, they, it wasn't the same back then. I mean, literally, that one woman was basically accused of witchcraft because she was kind of a loudmouth, you know. <laughs> the busybody. Yeah, busybody. Yep. Like, oh, she's out there talking about people having opinions, so she's clearly a witch. Well, the mass hysteria that I mentioned was actually defined as conversion disorder, and I, I can definitely see where this was, but as young children, at that time frame, children weren't allowed to be children. I mean, they worked, uh, you know, especially the young girls of the household, there was you know, laundry to do, cooking to do, harvesting to do, whatever. So you would think as a, a, a young person, a young child, you would kind of resent that. Some of the servants were brought in and they were punished uh, for bad behavior. They're going to lash out. And especially if you come to, has Bill ever mistreated you? <laughs> you know, well, yeah, yeah, he's a witch because he smacked me one night, you know. And I don't remember exactly what it's set, but there's a movie from a few years back called The Witch it's it's they say it's a horror movie and i would say that the horror and the terror definitely comes from the way people were treated and and it's i i would say it's probably a similar time frame but yeah it's a very you know it's it's a family dynamic where the the father is very much the man in charge mm -hmm. they do what he tells them to do and when the daughter questions him even the least little bit then she you know she's labeled a troublemaker very submissive family now of course it being a horror movie it turns out there's actual witches by the end of it but you know, for, for a big chunk of the movie, it's sort of just a slice of life of how things were and, and how repressive the society was. And and like you said, you know, you go to a servant and say, hey, were you ever mistreated? Well, I mean, that was commonplace. Absolutely. You could go to children. You could go to wives. You know, those, those were households where the men called the shots. And if you questioned what he was saying, even if what he was saying made no sense, you... you know, it didn't uncommon. make a difference. Yeah, you get a, you get a slap in the face just or for mouthing a, out. A lashing. So... Times were different, mm -hmm. and, and, and like I said, an opinionated woman in that day and age, well, you know, it was just easier to label her a witch. Yeah. And then all the horrible things that they did to witches. Yet another, we, we had touched about George Burroughs. He was the minister 
I mean, not only was he a man, which was unusual at the time for being convicted as a witch, but uh, the minister, George Burroughs, was sentenced to death and a hanging. And this is how paranoia and hysteria was at the time. He started quoting the Lord's Prayer right as his last words. And from what the writings are, the people that were watching started turning against the, the people who convicted him as a witch. Because if you're a witch, by all means, you're not supposed to be able to quote the Lord's Prayer. The man quoted it without stumbling from start to finish. Mr. Cotton Mathers, however, steps forward once again. He, he's an instigator. I'll just label him as that. But he's like, oh, do not be taken by the tools of Satan. Uh, Lucifer's trying to trick you through all things. The devil can make this happen. He must just be a stronger possessed witch, <laughs> you know, because he can do this. We're always before. That was actually a sign. If you could quote the Lord's Prayer you could not be afflicted by the demon or be a witch or anything okay, but, of the sort. But in modern day, don't we accept that the, you know, in, in possessions, you know, like the devil knows scripture and he can repeat that. that that's kind of evolved through the years. I, I, I grew up in a, in a very religious household. And one of the kind of things that was told to me by our youth minister was always remember the devil sits on the front pew of the church. And it, it was just kind of stuck with me. Well, it, it's, I mean, you know, you, with, with your Bible or he was an angel and, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of people tend to forget that, you know, they think of him as just this vile evil. And that was, that's you know, his, his origins were, were holy. So I want to close tonight with kind of taking us back to kind of, the, the peak of the Salem witch trials. Uh, this was recorded in August of 1692. People had traveled from all over, probably a hundred mile radius. And that particular day, five people were to be hung for witchcraft in the little town of Salem, Massachusetts. Quite the stir. People were gathering up. They followed the wagons. They were chanting, you know, uh, it was actually the third day of hangings. But on this day, it was different because there were five, a total of five convicted. Four were men of those five. And very again, as we talked about, men being accused of witches was very uncommon. One of the men was the prominent minister that we'd spoke about. The second was a distant relative of mine. Actually, his name was John Proctor. Uh, my mom's side of the family, we go back to the Cooks and the Proctors. He was a very well-respected uh, tavern keeper, a churchgoer, businessman, upstanding Protestant churchgoer, just totally a successful man, well-liked. He would be the last to hang that terrible day, meaning that he had to watch the previous four people being put to death, as I had mentioned on the hanging, was not a pleasant sight. You know, the events that began earlier that year in January, just by two small girls, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris, pointing fingers. Uh, you could it have all been stopped? Yes. Was it all blown out of proportions? Absolutely yes. But how tragic to think if there wasn't poisoning or something afflicting this, that two spoiled little girls may have been the whole cause of all of this. So what you're telling me is uh might be a witch. I might be a witch. It runs my family. I'll keep an eye on you. Okay. Yeah. I'll be watching you too. <laughs> With the sound of the bell, that will be the end of tonight's uh, adventure that we took you on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We hope that you've enjoyed our 50th celebration uh, episode, and we hope that you'll listen in to at least another 50 coming in the, in the future. We always appreciate uh, your input, giving us ideas on our Facebook page of things to uh, make possible discussions later for podcasts. 
And uh, thanks to Bill for all his time he spends to clean up all of this and make the best audible experience for all of you to listen to. Well, and thank you for giving us a place to do this and being patient with me when my my other obligations keep me from having the time to, to make make these episodes. Um, I, I love doing this. I'm glad it's something we get to do. We've put, what I say, almost 30 hours worth of content out in the world, which is more than most people are ever going to make. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like I said, I know we've got some loyal listeners. We get about 50 downloads in the first week. It's not much. Like like the meme says, it's not much, but it's honest work. So <laughs> we, I thank everyone for listening and, and for all the help and, and you know your your son Alex for the help he gives us with with setting up the the machinery and, and getting this all recorded, and your wife for being patient with us, taking time away from the weekends, and my family, your wife and family for allowing you to participate. It's a labor of love. We really enjoy doing it, and uh, hey, we appreciate you, the listener out there. Yeah, thank well, you so much. Yep, thank you, and, and we hope you keep listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first. Uh, paying sponsor Ravens Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.